Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Once again, we're in Revelation chapter 12 and 13. We're going to finish up some verses in Revelation 11 before we move on to chapter 12 and 13. Uh, like most weeks, there's a lot packed in here. Going to try to balance, again, forest and trees, some content and explanation with just impact and spiritual application as well. It's a couple of big picture things. As you go throughout Revelation, you find basically two groups of people. One group is found very succinctly in Revelation chapter 14, verse 4. Here's what it says. It'll be on the screens. They follow the Lamb, referring to believers, followers of Jesus. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. So number one in Revelation, it starts out with letters to churches. You have people who follow the Lamb. You have people who belong to Jesus. You have people who are united to Christ in faith and give their devotion to him, and they follow him even at the cost of their own lives, just like we saw in the video. The second category of people is in Revelation chapter 13, 8. It's actually in one of the verses we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, This group of people is referred to a number of times in Revelation as well. All the inhabitants of the earth, that's the category. And by inhabitants of the earth, it doesn't mean simply earth dwellers. It means those who orient their lives around the things of the earth rather than following the Lamb. They orient their lives around that which is visible, that which is obvious, that which is seen, rather than following the Lamb and following the Lamb faithfully in obedience to Him. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. We'll get into the beast a little bit later on this morning. All whose names, this is the category, all those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. So these are people who do not belong to the person of Jesus. They are not found in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. And so those two categories of people, inhabitants of the earth, And those who follow the Lamb show up all the time in Revelation. And what you have in Revelation, as you look through the book, you have seals, you have trumpets, you have bowls. And what you find is that as God's judgments or his wrath is often poured out on the earth, those two groups of people respond differently. There are those who follow the Lamb in faithfulness to him, or those who feel the loss of things they depend on for their natural lives. Uh, We mentioned a number of times that the seals and the trumpets, as well as the bulls, hearken back to the plagues of Egypt. What God was doing with the plagues of Egypt before Pharaoh was simply saying to this, Pharaoh, the people of Egypt, what you're basing your lives on is not foundational. It's not secure. It's not solid. It's not stable. If you simply base your life on what is physical and what you see around you, You're not basing your life on that which is strong and that which will endure. Instead, you're basing your life on that which is temporal, that which is passing. It was interesting to me, actually, over the last several years as we went through the pandemic. I would say at the beginning of the pandemic, there was an atmosphere of people praying. There was an atmosphere as, wow, like life is beyond us. Things are not as secure as we thought that they were. 
Things are not quite as solid and secure as we originally anticipated. But once the pandemic passed, we're kind of good to go. We're back to normal. Life goes on. Life moves on. We're just fine. Remember two decades ago now over when the Twin Towers fell. Remember, people across our country were, were praying on their knees, understanding that we're not nearly as in control as we thought that we were. Given a little time, we're good to go. We're just fine. That's exactly what Revelation is referencing, that we can experience moments of, yes, we need God, but unless we're faithful followers of Jesus, we quickly turn the page and we just get back to life as normal. A couple of weeks ago, DeMar Hamlin was um, injured severely in a football game. The whole country, TV stations were literally praying for DeMar. It was an amazing moment. A couple of weeks later, at the Grammys, at the Grammy Awards, the best Bob duo was won by two performers. One dressed visibly as a satanic figure. Those dancing around, uh, obviously, giving their worship to the the satanically dressed figure as well. Before that happened, CBS literally treated out CBS's words, not some pastor's words, CBS's words were, we are ready to worship. Listen, friends, that's exactly Revelation. We can go from one moment being brought to our knees and praying for DeMar Hamlin, and the next moment... We're ready to worship a satanic figure. That's the flippancy of our hearts. That's sort of the messiness of sin and the grip that it has on us. Just a couple things from Revelation chapter 11 that we want to close up from last week because we were flying along last week and didn't quite get to everything. Verse 15 of Revelation chapter 11. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. This happens at the end of the trumpets. And so the seventh trumpet is literally the coming of Jesus. And notice, the coming of Jesus is not simply about getting souls from earth to heaven. It's about ruling and reigning on earth. It's about the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. Revelation chapter 11, verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. We said last week, what's missing there? What's missing is the one who is to come because these verses are actually representing that Jesus has come. And so it says, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, doesn't mention who was to come, because this is the coming of Jesus, because you have taken your great power, listen to this, and have begun to reign. Verse 18, the nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for, listen to this, destroying those who destroy the earth. Is God judging simply because he's mad? No, yes, God does have wrath. But notice that his wrath is particularly because we have violated his creation. 
If we have anger issues, often our anger is destructive. God's wrath is rooted in the fact that we have been destructed. God's wrath is toward the destroyers. God's wrath is not destructive in and of itself. God's wrath is actually directed toward those who destroy. Scripture says that every human being falls short of God's glory. In other words, we have not carried out well. We have not been loving representations of how God wants to manage the world. We're selfish, we're greedy, we're proud, we're lustful, we're self-centered, we're self-absorbed. It's not how God designed earth to flourish. And so all of those things, greed, self-centeredness, lust, self-absorption, all of those things sabotage God's creation. And God is so passionate about his creation that one day he is going to bring judgment on every sabotager of his creation. He's going to judge those who destroy the earth. And it's only in Christ, only in Christ that we can be set free. Only in Christ, being united to him, can we truly have new life. Because Christ comes as the one who ultimately fulfills God's plan for how he wants people to respond to creation. Verse 19, then God's, then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. Just kind of a picture of the faithfulness of God, the covenant faithfulness of God for all time, the ark of the covenant, again, referencing the Old Testament tabernacle. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. That's Revelation chapter 11. It's one of the reasons why we feel it's not necessarily chronological, because in Revelation chapter 11, Jesus actually comes. I'm going to ask Terry to come up, and Terry's going to read Revelation chapter 12 for us. You can kind of hold on to your seats because there's a lot going on. Uh, he's going to read Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night 
has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Pretty calm reading, huh? Again, there's a lot there. Uh, we can't get into all of it. I wish that we could, uh, but we'll try to cover some of the highlights and at least get the big picture. Revelation chapter 12 is actually, again, another interlude in which the, the drama is being told of the battle between the forces of darkness represented in Satan and the plan of God to redeem his creation and to defeat Satan. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. All of these verses won't be in the screen, but a number of them will. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. When you see those words, uh, sun, moon, crown of 12 stars, brings you back to Joseph's dream in the Old Testament when he had a dream of his brothers bowing down to him. And so this is kind of a reference to the people of God that flowed out of, the, out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, ultimately the people of Israel. Kind of the picture seems to be that the human race, the first woman was Eve. Israel throughout the Old Testament is sometimes pictured as a woman. It's, it's the nation of Israel that ultimately gives birth to the Messiah, and it's also ultimately the person of Mary specifically that gives birth to Jesus. Verse, I have this chapter wrong, the next slide, is it should be Revelation chapter 12, verse 3. I have a couple of slides here that have the wrong chapter in. Apologize for that, it's my fault. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. And we're told specifically in verse 9 that this is the Satan personified. Uh, most likely the Seven heads, the ten horns, represent the fact that Satan's power is multidimensional. Throughout the series, we've said that number seven represents completeness. Number ten often represents a sense of ultimateness, ultimate power. And so the power of Satan expressed in the red dragon is not isolated. It's not isolated to one place on earth. It's multifaceted in every category of life, in every discipline of life, from economics to politics to education, everything, sexuality, all of those. Satan has, has seven ten horns and seven crowns and seven heads, meaning his impact and influence over every aspect of creation. Verse 
4 of chapter 12. Again, the reference is wrong here. Its tail swept the third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman and was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Throughout the Old Testament, what you find is Satan is absolutely opposed to the working of God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, this is God talking to Eve, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right out of the chute, God says to Eve, to actually Satan, he says, there's going to be enmity between you and the seed of the woman. Because I'm going to use Eve and my people to bring about my plan of redemption. I'm going to use the seed of the woman to bring about restoration. I'm going to use the seed of the woman to actually conquer the person of Satan who brought deception. And so throughout Scripture, you find antagonism constantly happening. When Cain killed Abel, Satan was at work. When Pharaoh threw the Israelite babies into the Nile to drown, Satan was at work. When Saul caused David, when Saul chased David to try to kill him, Satan was at work. When Ahab and Jezebel tried to kill Elijah, Satan was at work. When Haman tried to execute the people of Israel and Esther, Satan was at work. When Herod killed the male babies in Bethlehem, Satan was at work. Listen, friends, make no mistake about it. Satan is opposed to God. He's opposed to God. Verse 5 of chapter 12. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and his throne. And notice there, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. Often again, we kind of have this very, very micro vision of why God came in the person of Jesus. He did not come simply to get our souls from earth to heaven. Yes, experiencing eternal life is part of that. But Jesus, listen friends, Jesus came to rule absolutely everything. He did not come just to get you to heaven. He came to be king of absolutely everything. In Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, I remember talking about this uh, probably a year or so ago at Christmas time. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. That's how the world is run. And so Jesus came so the government, how the world functions, how the world runs, will be on his shoulders. We may not understand it. We may think the vision of Jesus is this small. The reason Satan fights so hard is because he knows it's bigger. He knows it's grand. He knows God is in it to get the whole world for himself. We have often a puny vision of what God is after. God is, yes, you will experience eternal life by being united to Christ through faith. But God is not just after that. God is interested in the whole world. And Satan gets that vision sometimes better than we do. Verse 6, the woman fled into the world. Uh, just one thing back to verse 5. Uh, the child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Probably the ascension of Jesus there. Or that he's brought up to the presence of God. He's snatched up. Verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Again, my best understanding of that and hold this very, very loosely could refer to a number of things. But remember, we said last week that the 1,260 days of 42 months and three and a half years of the faithful witnesses seemed to be the perspective of the, the church age between the ascension of Jesus and his second coming. And so what this seems to be indicating is that that 1,260 days, again, 
is, is the church literally now, you and I as followers of Jesus, we live in a wilderness time. We don't live on friendly territory. And my guess is every single person in this room feels that. Every one of you knows that. To some degree or another, you understand that you live in a wilderness time. You probably fight, you probably battle. There's probably challenges in your marriage. There's probably challenges with your kids. There's probably challenges in your relationship with your, with your friends. Friends, we've got to get used to this. As followers of Jesus, we are people of the wilderness. Don't let any pastors and preachers tell you that once you belong to Jesus, life should be squeaky clean and absolutely wonderful, and you're walking on some sort of petals of roses. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a wilderness person. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a faithful witness to him in the wilderness. I'm part of our SR Midweek that's group that's studying Revelation. And at my table this last Wednesday, just a number of the folks at my table simply said, man, like as a follower of Jesus, I feel so alone. Which is actually why we gather in groups and why we gather here this morning. But a couple of people commented at work, like I'm the only one who acknowledges the name of Christ. Among my friends, I'm the only one who acknowledges the name of Christ. In my family, I'm the only one who acknowledges the name of Christ. It's hard. We're wilderness people. And you probably feel the tug of that. You may feel alone. You may feel defeated. You may feel like, what, no, like, how can God's plan be so grand and so great if this is how I feel in daily life? We are wilderness people, friends. Verses 7 and 8, then war broke out in heaven. That's pretty crazy. We could spend a long time talking about that. And Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. They lost their place in heaven. Verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, the one who deceived Eve. That dragon, that serpent, or Satan who leads the whole earth world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. My best understanding of that is that that relates to the moment of Jesus' death and resurrection when Satan knew he was defeated and he was thrown out of heaven. John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus says this, now, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Those words of Satan being hurled out of heaven, verse, let me look at verse 10. Now, have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sister who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Listen, friends, at the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Satan was dealt a fatal blow. I don't know if you remember this. I think this was a few years ago. Uh, there was, I think it was, happened in Texas, a guy in Texas I think killed some kind of rattlesnake with a shovel. He chopped it up into pieces and he went down and the head actually bit him. 
The head was severed from the body. The snake was as good as dead. Snake no longer had the power of life. But just the muscular reactions of the rattlesnake actually still bit the man, even though he had killed the snake. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I grew up in a little Pennsylvania farm. Uh, I hope this is appropriate for this congregation, but um, we had chickens. I saw a lot of chickens get killed. I chopped off the heads of some myself. It wasn't, I mean, just like how we lived. That's, that's farm life. Let me tell you something. You probably are familiar with the phrase, you run around like a chicken with its head cut off. Are you probably familiar with that? A chicken thrashes most after it loses its head, as the muscles spasm. Listen, friends, Satan has been defeated. He's thrashing like crazy. Satan has been decapitated by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But he is angry. And might I say, appropriately, he's angry as hell. He really is. He's defeated. But he's angry with the anger of hell, knowing that judgment is coming. He's lost his standing. He's lost his bid to rule creation. Verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives even so as to shrink from death. There's a lot of that we did get to cover. The life of the woman in the wilderness, the opening of the earth, probably hearkening back to some of the Old Testament images of the earth opening and swallowing up those who are stood in opposition to God. So there's a lot that happens in Revelation chapter 12 that we won't necessarily be able to get to. But Revelation chapter 12 is about the absolute ferocity of the real person of Satan. He's not fictitious. He's not a comic figure. The absolute ferocity of Satan, who's been hurled out of heaven, who is angry, who attacks as best as he can the earth that God has created to do as much damage as he possibly can before Jesus comes and brings his reign, the reign of of Satan, to a final end. He's going to cause as much damage as he possibly can. In your marriage, in your life, in your family, in your relationships, he's going to cause as much damage as he possibly can. I'm going to call Terry up, and he's going to read Revelation chapter 13, and uh, we'll keep on cruising along here. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon 
because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Thank you again, Terry. Um, One of the themes that you seem to have in Revelation is the forces of Satan constantly trying to counterfeit the work of God. Uh, Many even see a counterfeit between the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and a threesome, as it were, of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Even in the kind of roles that they have, Father, who is kind of the orchestrator, Son, who executes God's plan on planet Earth. Holy Spirit, who breathes life into the plan of God. The same counterfeit seems to be happening with the forces of darkness as well. There's Satan, the fallen angel, the one who's opposed to God, who's the originator of evil. There's the beast who kind of executes the plan of Satan and the dragon on Earth. And then later, next week, we'll look at the false prophet who seems to breathe life into what Satan and the, false, and the beast are trying to do. Uh, Revelation chapter 13, 1. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and each had a blasphemous name. Uh, once again, uh, ten horns... Seven heads coming out of the sea was a place of kind of the the chaotic, the abyss, if it were. The imagery of a beast is strange to us, but it's quite familiar in Scripture. This comes from Nancy Guthrie. Daniel wrote about four beasts that represented consecutive world powers over history. The empire of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Like Daniel's fourth beast that represented imperial Rome, the beast here in Revelation has ten horns. John is portraying the Roman Empire as a grotesque monster that has been granted that has been granted power by Satan. Again, when we go when we're going through Revelation, often we ask the question: Was that then back then? Is it now? Is it in the future? Like to all of those questions, I would probably say yes. In Revelation, the listeners that John is writing to, the people the folks that are gathered together, the churches that are hearing this read, they were under the Roman Empire that was beastly in its life, in its disposition. When you think of a beast, 
think of God originally, God's original creation in the Garden of Eden. He creates beautiful living creatures. Creatures that bring honor and glory to him. Creatures that are beautiful. The beast is the exact opposite. It's grotesque. It brings damage. It brings destruction. It's intent on doing that which is devastating to human beings. It's beastly in its nature in every sense of that word. The use of beasts as personifying empires seems to indicate that they're untamed. They're rogue. They're going against that which is God's creation. Remember, again, in the Old Testament, beasts are often used to represent world empires. And so this beast specifically seems to represent the Roman Empire, but also represents worldly empires in our modern day. May well represent a future, some kind of empire as well. Empires that demand loyalty to themselves. As we watched the video earlier on, we saw numbers of countries where if you're a follower of Jesus, you can be killed, beaten, no aid is given to you. We know that in the first century, John's listeners, his readers, often as a follower of Jesus, they would lose their professional life. They would lose their standing and the trade guilds that were essential for economic survival in that day. They would often go hungry. They would not be able to eat simply because they would not pay loyalty to Rome, the beast. And so this is talking about loyalty to a world system that demands your homage, that demands that you revere it. Poitras says this, because the beast expresses a general principle of satanic opposition, we may expect multiple manifestations. These manifestations occurred in the first century. They will occur in the final crisis and have been occurring at all times in between. And so the beast literally is always existing as a worldly empire that tells you how you should live, the kind of values that you should have, what you should base your life on. In verse 3, where it's noted that the beast has some sort of fatal wound. Again, this seems to be referencing specifically the Roman Empire. Uh, could also have some sort of future indication as well, some sort of present application. But let me simply say this about the fatal wound that's mentioned in uh, verse 3. After Nero's death in 68, the rumor spread that he would return to life. And that tradition may be behind verse 3. Some impostors claimed to be Nero, while others thought that Nero was hiding among the Parthians. Domitian, the emperor, when John was probably writing, was often called the second Nero because he readily killed those he deemed a threat. The return of the beast from the dead is one of the ways that Satan parodies the risen Christ. And so kind of most likely in ancient Rome, it was often thought that Nero had sort of this second life, this resurrection, as it were, because Domitian often followed in Nero's actual steps. Some people actually thought that Nero wasn't hiding and would return in ancient Rome. Again, it seems of high levels of application to the ancient time. Certainly his applications to our modern day might well certainly have applications to the future as well. Verse 4, the people worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? 
Nancy Guthrie says this, he has a counterfeit resurrection in the form of a mortal wound that was healed. The dragon gives the beast his power and his throne and great authority, just as the father gives the son his authority. Worship of the dragon and the beast go together, just as worship of the father and the son go together. The beast claims universal allegiance from all nations, just as Christ Lord over, is Lord over all nations. Throughout the passage, it's clear The dragon, the beast, the false prophet are counterfeiting the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 8, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. The beast seeks our allegiance, power, influence, Immediate gratification, living by what is seen. And the beast seeks us to orient our lives to what our modern culture celebrates rather than faithfully following the Lamb. I want to kind of leave you with this thought. Often when we think about the beast and sometimes revelation, we think of hard power empires. Rome was one. Hard power, meaning they rule by direct military might. They rule by overt economic discrimination. That's hard power. I think what I'm most concerned about in our modern day is not necessarily the hard power, but the soft power. Soft power is when an empire woos and lures you in. That before you even know it, you begin to have the same values, beliefs, and orientation as the culture around you. Again, it can be really challenging to know in Revelation what's past, present, future, and throughout the series, we've been saying it's kind of all three. But sometimes I wonder if we're so concerned about some future dominate, overtly dominating power that as followers of Jesus, we sometimes lose sight of how much we've already adopted the culture of the world around us. And because we're so prone to think of hard power and being strong against hard power, I wonder if we've given way to the soft power. I wonder if our lives are more oriented around our possessions than about Jesus. That's soft power. I wonder if our lives are more oriented around what's going to bring me comfort and pleasure and ease rather than losing ourselves for the sake of Christ. I wonder if we're so oriented to economic prosperity and public influence And we've given way to that soft power. 
rather than following Jesus on our knees and in prayer. I wonder if we've given way to the soft power of independence and strength. And we've lost following Jesus by surrendering our lives and releasing all to him. In a lot of ways, I'm much less concerned about hard power and I'm much more concerned about soft power. I'm going to ask our team to come out and we're going to close our service by singing Christ is Enough. Because here's the deal, friends. We covered a lot of weighty stuff this morning, didn't we? It's a lot of it's heavy stuff. It really is. But Christ is the one that we follow. We triumph not because we have it together. We triumph because of the Lamb. We conquer because he triumphed. We conquer because Jesus conquered Satan. He's thrown out of heaven. He's thrashing. You're in the wilderness, but you're okay because Christ is enough. Let's stand and sing. Enough for me Everything
Satan in darkness not because we're strong or super spiritual but because of the lamb the blood of the lamb has triumphed for us thank you for the triumph of the lamb may we follow the lamb and everyone who agreed said intense stuff isn't it it's intense God bless follow the lamb our prayer team is down here to the right we'd love to pray for you have a great day